If you would, please turn in your Bibles to, to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. And I'm just going to read verses 1 to 7. 1 to 7. My plan is to just cover verses 1 to 7 today, and then when I come back on the 26th, Lord willing, I'm going to cover verses 8 to 13. <clears throat> the title of the sermon is Hope in Hard Times. Hope in Hard Times. Psalm 85. To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Amen. The psalm which stands before us this morning speaks, as it were, a word in due season to him that is weary. To him that is weary and heavy laden. To him who is pressed down with grieves and sorrows. You could say the psalm speaks strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. The portion of all who have believed in God must include trials and tribulations. Feeble knees and stormy seas lie before every gracious soul that is set on pilgrimage. You may stand upright today, but do not be surprised if in due time your strength fails. We all go from strength to strength, yes, in Christ Jesus, but not without our crawling and at times even our falling. It is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, little flock, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But that kingdom comes with a cost. It comes with loss. It comes with a cross. In the wisdom of God, if you think about it, in the wisdom of God, He ordains our strength in and through the realization of our own weakness. <laughs> that is right. It is the truth. You cannot be strong in the Lord unless you become feeble, weak, needy. Even more than that, it is the grace and glory of God to make us to feel our own native dependency. That we also may find our all in Him and Him alone. The Lord knows what we need far more than we do. Our God and Savior knows how to bring us to our knees. Just imagine with me for a moment. A day in your life. You wake up in the morning. The sun is shining. The birds outside are singing. Your time with com in communion with God and His Word and in prayer is uninterrupted. It is blessed. Breakfast is just right. Just the way you like it. You head out for the day. You're on time. There's no rush. Everything seems to be going your way. No red lights. No surprises. No sorrows. You come back home. All is well. The house is in order. Just as you left it. Laying down to sleep that night. As your head hits the pillow, you think to yourself, My lot has fallen to me in pleasant places. Thank you, Lord. And you drift off to sleep. Now, some of you are probably saying, Stop already. I have never seen a day like that. Or at least it feels that way. That's why I began with, Imagine with me. <laughs> but just think, if things went that way for you, 
on a smooth sailing day like that, what do you think your prayer life would have looked like? Now envision a much different day. Let's say you didn't sleep well at all the night before. The morning comes upon you quickly. The cares of the day rush upon you like a robber, like an armed man. The day grabs a hold of you. Before you've even had a moment to think, you're already behind schedule. You leave the house, and as you get into your car, you spill your coffee all over yourself. On your drive, it seems like you can't catch a break. It seems like every red light knows you're coming around the corner. Finally, you arrive to your destination, and you are received by your familiar friends. Chaos and disorder. In that place, before time, much time goes by, you get a phone call. Some sort of bad news, some grief, some suffering has entered into your life or into the life of a loved one, a calamity or an accident. Your heart is arrested by looming uncertainty. Then, at some time during the day, you give in to temptation and sin. Now you have the burden of your sin and an accusing conscience piled on top of already an unseemingly unbear a seemingly unbearable weight. And it's only 10 a.m. Now tell me, what do you think your prayer life would look like on a day like that? How would you pray as you are set to sail upon those stormy seas? Again, the Lord knows how to bring us to our knees. He knows how to bring us to prayer, how to make us feel our need. Hard providences often teach us to pray best. A wise man once said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He also said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Many a Christian would confess that there has been little in their Christian life that has served them better than suffering. With Paul, they would boast in their infirmities that God would get the glory. Yeah. Have we found that? Have we found that the more we are shown and, to, and made to taste our own weakness, that our strength is manifest in life. My portion of sorrows from the Lord has been so good to my soul. And I know it is because my Redeemer lives. It's because I have a compassionate high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ, the righteousness. Amen. And through Christ, through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us, we can have hope. In hard times. This is the heart of Psalm 85. Here the psalmist. One of the sons of Korah. Has been driven to prayer. By the hand of hard providence. Hard things. God's ruling and governing. All things according to the counsel of his will. A bitter cup. From the Lord. Has driven the sons of Korah. To pray in this way. And so he. This, this son of Korah with the covenant community, sing to the Lord, and they seek by prayer hope in hard times. I'm going to seek to cover the first seven verses this morning under two points. Point one, the past mercies of Yahweh. And point two, an appeal to Yahweh for salvation. Point one, the past mercies of Yahweh. That's verses one to three, a recollection. And point two, an appeal to Yahweh for salvation. That's verses 4 to 7, a supplication. Okay? So point one, the past mercies of Yahweh. Verses 1 to 3, a recollection. As we begin to look at the text, let me first say a couple of things about the context, the historical context. When, when did this psalm take place? When, when was it written? Although there's some debate about it, what we have before us is most likely a post-exilic psalm, a post-exilic psalm. It is a prayer to the God of the covenant for salvation, for complete restoration, and for revival. It is true, in every age, this prayer and meditation would be appropriate for the church, 
for all of God's people this side of glory. This side of glory. Because in that place, there is no sorrow, there is no tear, there is no suffering. But in this world, the church has their troubles. Yes, in this life, all of that chosen race are made to drink the cup of joy mingled with weeping. In every age, the people of God have had their enemies from which they needed to be delivered, their sins which to be forgiven of, and their trials to be sustained throughout. And this psalm is a cry for mercy. It is a cry for mercy. And hear the author. author he not only remembers, remember, a recollection. He not only remembers God's past mercies, but he at the same time is reminding Yahweh of his former faithful dealings with his children. And if you think about it, this section, this, this remembrance and this reminder, him re re recollecting, recalling, remembering God's past mercies, and at the same time reminding God of his dealings with his people in the past, it becomes the basis for the plea in verses 4 to 7. Notice, notice the past tense, right? The past mercies of God. Notice the past tense of the verbs in verses 1 to 3. And Yahweh, God, the God of the covenant, is the, the subject. Verse 1, Lord, you have been favorable. You have brought back. Verse 2, you have forgiven. You have covered Verse 3, you have taken away all your wrath. You have turned. <clears throat> it's as if the psalmist is saying, to Yahweh be the glory. Glory be to you, God. To you, Lord. Be glory to Yahweh. Great things he has done. This is one thing that leads me to believe that it, it's a post-exilic psalm, a, so a song that would have been sung in the days after the Babylonian captivity. That, speaking of the time when the Jews were bought, brought back into the land of promise to rebuild the temple and to establish worship in Jerusalem. The days of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. That time that you've been studying in the Sunday school hour um, when, as you're going through Haggai and Zechariah. Another reason why I take the prayer to be post-exilic is the language used, particularly in the second half of verse 1. The psalmist says, you have brought back the captivity of Jacob. The ESV has it, you have restored the fortunes of Jacob. The NET, which is the New English translation, you have restored the well-being of your people, Jacob. Just remember with me, long before all of that wrath, if you know your Bible and you know biblical history, long before all of that wrath and displeasure fell upon the nation of Israel for their forgetfulness of divine mercy and rebellion, the Lord told them that captivity would surely come to pass. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Yahweh instructs and warns his people, and he uses the same language that the psalmist uses in Psalm 85, Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 3. Yahweh says through Moses, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you. Remember, he's on Mount Moriah and he's, he says, Here are the blessings and here are the curses. Blessings for obedience to the covenant, cursings for disobedience to the covenant. Covenant. Mm -hmm. The, when these things, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and you obey his voice according to all that I have commanded you, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, when you repent of your sins and you realize how your sins have driven you from, from this place. And you turn from your sins and you turn back to me. With all your heart and with all your soul. That the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. There's the language. That the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. And have compassion on you. And gather you again from all nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. And you see the same language in, in, in Psalm 85. 
The psalmist says, you have done that. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. And then also, that same Hebrew word for um, to bring back or to, to restore is used approximately 14 times in the book of Jeremiah. And it is always related to restoration and being brought back from the Babylonian captivity. Here's one example. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its plan. Right. So the prophet of the midnight hour, the doomsday prophet, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, on the heels of the Babylonian uh, conquest of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Solomon's temple. He uses the same language, speaking of what is about to happen to Jerusalem. And the psalm, psalmist in Psalm 85 says, you have done it. You have done this. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. And then Nehemiah, in addition to Moses and Jeremiah, Nehemiah, who was permitted by King Artaxerxes to return back to the land of Judah with some of the captives, he tells us in Nehemiah 7, 6, these are the people of the province who, again, came back from the captivity. And he tells us in verses 66 of chapter 7, altogether the whole assembly was approximately 42,360. So then you see, I know it's technical, but there's debate and I just... It's helpful to know when was this psalm written. From, from these things, Yahweh's promise to bring back the captivity of his people in Deuteronomy 30, the often referenced bringing back of the captivity of Jacob throughout the prophecy of Je Jeremiah, the report of Nehemiah that the people had arrived back in the land of Jerusalem from captivity, and the past tense language of Psalm 85, you have brought us back leads me to believe that this is a post-exilic psalm. And it took place in those days after Nehemiah came and started to establish worship. Therefore, right, when you think, therefore, I don't think it would be far-fetched to say it was very likely that the people may have sung together and prayed this psalm as they were busy with the work of rebuilding the temple. As they were being assailed by their enemies. By those who with every opportunity sought out schemes to hinder the work of the people of God in the reformation and constitution of orderly worship. And therefore, I believe this psalm is especially applicable for every gospel church which seeks to establish the same God-honoring worship in the present evil age. Because there are many, many people. Let this, what I'm saying is, as a church, let this psalm be your psalm. Has he not delivered you? But do you not still find yourself in need of deliverance now? Deliverance from evil within? Deliverance from evil without? Jesus tells us in the gospel of Matthew chapter, of Matthew chapter 24 verse 12. This is an age where the love that men have for one another will grow cold. And few will obey the law of God. So let these, these words, the words of Psalm 85, be our words. Let them be the meditation of our heart. With that being said, let's look a little closer at the first three verses. Verse 1. If you look right at the beginning, the emphasis is on Yahweh's exposition of favor towards His covenant people. The exposition, right? You go, you go to an exposition to see something, to see something on display. Well, what is on display here in verse 1? Lord, you have been favorable to your land, or you have showed favor to your people. This favor, it highlights the reality that restoration, forgiveness of sin, covering of sin, joy, salvation, life, and a right relationship with Yahweh, the God of the covenant, are all according to and built on nothing less than God's unchanging grace. All of it, all of the things that they had received was according to God's grace and His own freedom to bestow it on whoever He wills. 
The favor of God's good pleasure brought the children of Israel back from Babylonian captivity. It was not because one day they just woke up and thought to themselves, you know, I, I'm tired of living. They were very comfortable in the land of Babylon. They were very comfortable there. Many of the generations that, that followed the captivity generation, they had set up towns and they were legal, they were governors. They were law, law officials. They had families. Their families had families. They were very comfortable. It was not because just one day they woke up and said, you know, I'm going to return to the God of the covenant and I'm going to return to that abandoned wasteland of Israel. No. It was God's good pleasure that awakened them like the prodigal son is eating out of the pig troughs and realizes, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against my father and turned him around. It was God's good pleasure to turn the Jews away from their idolatry and back to his land and to restore them then and to worship him according to his word, according to his promise. The favor of God's good pleasure brought the children of Israel back from Babylonian captivity. It pleased him to restore the fortunes of Jacob. That's how the ESV words it, fortunes. Let's, let's think about that together. In the NKJV, is, it's you brought back the captivity of Jacob. In the ESV, it's you restored the fortunes of Jacob. Fortunes, here are the fortunes. The fortunes meaning the oppressed and harassed people in exile. That's what the fortunes were. Fortunes, not in the sense of Jacob's treasures or Israel's possessions, no. But rather, God restored, he turned, he brought back his precious possession, his people, Jacob. You see, so in, when God restored his fortunes, when God restored the fortunes of Jacob, what he's saying is he restored the people of Israel back to their place. In other words, it is God's people. It is God's people who are his fortunes. You see that in, uh, I believe, Titus, right? That you are his precious possession in Christ Jesus. And that is also true of you. If you have believed and do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel, if that is so, then you are his precious possession. You are valuable in the sight of God, very precious in his eyes. And he will keep you. He will keep you like a precious locket. Verse 2, you have forgiven. What is, this, what is this restoration? What does this turning consist of? You have forgiven. You have covered. In, in other words, it pleased the Lord to forgive and to cover the iniquity and sin of his people. To forgive, literally to lift up the burden or to, to take up and to carry away the guilt and the misery of sin and its sour consequences. That is what the Lord did for them. Amen. That's what the Lord did for them. And if you are in Christ, that is what the Lord has done for you. There is yeah. nothing. Blessed is the man who's not whose bank account is full or who feels great when he wakes up in the morning. No, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquity has been covered. And not because, not because Judah deserved it. Not because they were mighty or wise, because they were not. They were the smallest of all nations in the earth. The Lord says it was like a baby left in its own blood and abandoned. And what did he do with the nation of Israel? He saved her and he dressed her in beautiful garments. And he put a ring upon her finger and beautiful necklaces and adopted her. That's, that was the nation of Israel. When the Lord chose her out of all nations. Not because of any righteous deeds that they had done. Not because of them or any virtue in them. But because it pleased God to do it. The sovereign, gracious, loving election of God is what made Israel different than anybody else. Not because of them. It's because it pleased God. And... To bring them back, he did that because it pleased him to keep his promise to them. It, if I may say it reverently, it delighted the heart of Yahweh to show mercy towards his people and to atone for all their 
sins. Verse 3, he continues, you have taken away all your wrath. So he just said before in verse 2, you have covered all their sin. And now here in verse 3, you have taken away all your wrath. And then the idea here is sin and wrath, not in part, but the whole. Sin, not in part, but the whole. Wrath, not in part, but the whole. Now, let's think about this wrath. When I was a very, when, I'm still a very young Christian, but when I was a really, really baby Christian, the first church I ever went into, I was not raised in church. I was a very, very new believer, but I had my Bible and I had my God. And I was at a Bible study one night and the person who's leading the Bible study, I come to find out that this church, Easy Believism, um, antinomianism and baptismal regeneration. So the f- three of the first lessons I learned as a Christian were those. What is easy believism? I saw it right in front of me. What was antinomianism? Right before my face. What was baptismal regeneration? I learned when I got baptized in that church because everybody said, hey, welcome to the, welcome to the family. I'm like, I- I've been a part of the family of God for six months. What, what do you mean? Well, you were just baptized. So at a, at a Bible study, the person who was leading asked everybody, who wants to talk about grace? Who wants to talk about the grace of God? And everybody is like gleeful. Oh, yeah, we want to talk about the grace of God. We want to talk about the grace of God. And they said, okay, okay, well, what about, you know, do you, who wants to talk about the wrath of God? And you could have heard crickets. And all of a sudden, just as a young believer, I just raised my hand and I said, I want to talk about the wrath of God. And there was a, a collective gasp in the room. And the man said, Michael, why, why would you want to speak about the wrath of God? Why, why would you want to think about the wrath of God? And I said, because my God, the God of the Bible, is not only a God of grace and mercy, but he's a consuming fire. And I want to, I want to know that God. I want to hear about that God. But it's true. Nobody wants to hear about that God, it seems. It's a very rare thing to want the whole God. But if you don't think about the whole God, you won't see your need for the whole Christ right. who is sufficient. And the one and true living God is he who manifests righteous wrath and anger through judgment on all that is not in accord with his perfect holiness. In the Babylonian captivity, you just all you have to do is look at the Babylonian captivity to prove that point. Zion was plowed like a field. And Jerusalem became heaps of charred stone. The desolation of the city of David was the consequence of man's sin colliding with the unchanging righteousness of God Almighty. And great was the overthrow when the Lord of hosts unsheathed his sword and brought to slaughter the sheep of his own pasture. But... But he relented. He turned from the utter destruction of Jacob. He left, as it were, a a living stump in David's house where a little branch would shoot out, become a tree that fills the heavens and the earth to the glory of God in the house of David. Here it says he withdrew all his wrath and he turned himself from the fierceness of his fury. Could you imagine? Put yourself there. In those days, could you imagine the terror that must have seized the heart of Jerusalem as she witnessed the Chaldeans scaling the walls of her city, breaking the bars of her gates, setting flame to her dwellings, her little ones dashed to pieces on the rocks, her women stripped of their dignity, her mighty men slain, naked by the sword. And then those who remained, covered in dust and ashes, captured and carried away to a strange land, shrouded in pagan darkness. That is the wrath of God. The children of Israel who saw these heart-shaking happenings would not have wondered about like a blind man, ignorant of why such calamity would have befallen them. They knew, they knew They would have known this is the hand of God's displeasure. This is the rod of Yahweh's indignation. It is because of our sin that he is incensed. But in the day of our our psalmist, in the day of God's people, 
In the day that these people would have sung this psalm, Yahweh had stopped. He had stopped. He had stopped being angry with them. He had laid aside his fury. Times of refreshing had come from the presence of the Lord. He had not forgotten to show mercy to Jacob, his people. And so the psalmist, he brings to mind right, this restoring, this forgiving favor of the Lord. He's reminding Yahweh, look at what you've done for us. Lord, you have done this for us before. You have been our rock and our savior. In this, the psalmist encourages himself by looking at God's mercies in the past. He encourages himself to hope in hard times. This, this remembrance becomes the basis of his plea. It appears from this in verses, verses 4 to 7. This plea for mercy, this plea for restoration, this plea to remove wrath. That now this, these returned exiles, though they are restored back into the favor of God. That's what it meant to be restored to the land. Is to be restored back into the favor of God. To be pushed out of the land was to be separated from God. Separated from His grace. Under His wrath. But here, they find themselves in need of their day's portion of steadfast love. They're backsliding. They're backsliding. And the consequential pain from it leads the psalmist to plead with God for mercy. <coughs> this section, verses 4 to 7, consists of a lament and plea for help in present trouble. A lament and plea for help in present trouble. If we fail, if you, you think about verses 1 to 3 and how it relates to verses 4 to 7, if we fail to understand verses 1 to 3 as a remembrance of past mercies and verses 4 to 7 as a plea for present mercy, then if you fail to see that distinction, then our section would be redundant. But why would the psalmist pray for something that he just finished saying God had already done? It, it wouldn't, there would be no need but if you see this as God's past mercies and restoring them to the land, but him in a pr present circumstance of distress, misery, calamity, backsliding, then you see his need and the people's need for present mercies. The people had been restored back to God and back to the land, but they were in need of complete and perfect restoration. God's wrath had ceased because pardon was given, but they were still enduring effects, the effects of the fall. Sin and misery were still the common experience of man. That should, this is just an aside, but that should remind us that even for those people who had been restored and people who had been forgiven, they were looking forward to something greater. Even when that temple was, was built, they realized really, really quickly, this is not the fulfillment of the promises. This is, just a, this is just another sign pointing us forward to a glorious age that is to come. The temple of God in their day was still in ruins. The enemies of God's heritage were still roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom they may, may devour. And the people, if you remember, Jeremiah had to come and pluck the man's beard off of his face because they were breaking the Sabbath. They were not honoring the fourth commandment. The people were turning away from God again. They were marrying foreign women. They were giving themselves over to idolatry. They were in a backsliding state. They were restored already, but not yet fully. And so the ESV says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Can that not be your prayer? You have done this for me. Do it again, God. Every day, do it again. Restore me. Revive me that I might praise you. Turn me, and I will be turned. Let's look at verse 4, right? A plea for turning. What I want to consider first is, is the meaning of restoration. Um, as it's used here, as I've already said, turning, right? The psalmist is pleading to be brought back into the joy of covenantal communion with God. We know that for God's people, God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But there are times when the believers go into what is called the dark night of the soul. When it seems as though heaven has a steel curtain over it. And he can't hear your prayers. And you find no joy in your soul. David speaks of it when he, when he says in Psalm 32. 
He can say, blessed is the man who is forgiven. But right after he says, when I kept silent, my bones grew weary. My tongue clung to the top of my, la- my mouth. But then I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord. And you, you forgave the iniquity of my heart. He says this something very similar in Psalm 51, 9 to 12. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous Spirit, turn us again. This is what the psalmist is saying. Turn us again to yourself, O Lord. Take away the dark clouds from over our heads. Shut up heaven's downpour of difficulty and despair and allow us to savor again your tender, loving kindness. Do that, God. You see, he knows whom he has believed in. Yes, He knows whom he has believed in. And he brings his pitiful, empty-handed petition to the God of his salvation. He applies himself to God, bringing the whole congregation with him. Verse 7, he says, Show us your mercy, Lord. Grant us your salvation. To Yahweh. This is what I want to focus on in this verse. To Yahweh. Show us your mercy, Yahweh. Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. To Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the faithful covenant-keeping God, the one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is where he goes. Consider with me, brethren, it's the Lord here. If you miss this, you've missed everything. The Lord is the one who takes center stage in this psalm. Don't allow the prayer or the plea, the psalmist or the situation or the suffering to eclipse that truth. If you do, you will, you will be mistaken. Psalm 85 is about Yahweh and his unchanging love for his own people. Do not miss that point. Behold the exhibition of the great and gracious God of Jacob. Just look at your Bibles. Look down at your Bibles. In every single verse, Yahweh is addressed. In the NKJV, the New King James Version, verse 1, Lord, Yahweh, you have your land. You have. Verse 2, you, your, you. Verse 3, you, your, you. You see that? As you, you keep going, like in my Bible, it lines straight up, just line after line. You, 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 Yahweh, you, God, God of our salvation. Verse 7, your mercy, Lord, your salvation. Verse 8, God the Lord, he, his people, his saints. Verse 9, his salvation, fear him. Verse 11, excuse me, verse 10 and 11, you see the, the harmonious perfections, God's attributes, God's perfections. Of mercy, truth, and righteousness. Verse 12, the Lord. And verse 13, righteousness, him, and his footsteps. You see his footsteps all through that passage? In every verse, Yahweh is on display. His mercy is on display. His covenant faithfulness is on display. His kindness is on display. Do you get the point? Do you get the psalmist's point? Don't overlook it. Don't overlook the Lord. He is everywhere in this text. Let that truth shine into your soul. When I saw that, it was so encouraging to me. Because when you focus on your sufferings or your circumstances, the light starts to fade away. And it becomes very dark. But only Yahweh can shine the light into our souls. And in the darkest room, it will be like noonday sun. It will be like noonday sun when the Lord is in your mind. And your mind is stayed upon Him. Because you trust in Him. You will have perfect peace if you stay your mind upon God. No matter your situation, if you trust and trust yourself to Him, you will have the light of the life of men in your soul. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. He has so worked in and through the sons of Korah in order to get us today, 
this morning to set our mind on Yahweh and his loving kindness towards his people so that we might have strong encouragement to call upon him in the day of trouble. <clears throat> now, let me, let me say a few things briefly about these questions that he, that he brings, these inquiries. This is, a, this is a demonstration of how to plead with your God. Verse 5, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? You see what he is doing, like Jacob wrestling with the Lord until the Lord pulled his hip out of socket. He is seeking, the psalmist is seeking to prevail with God in prayer. What he's doing is he's wrestling with God in prayer. He's reasoning with God. He's trying to persuade God. He is not wondering if God will be good or not. He is not clueless as to God's design. He knows God's promises. What the supplicant is doing is he is praying with the presupposition that God has made certain promises to his people. And because he knows God's own nature and character, he prays with confidence. Because he is assured that God cannot break his word to his people. That is what gives us boldness. Yes, Christ Jesus gives us bold, but God who cannot lie has promised. And that should give us great confidence to come to him. He prays in light of the promises, knowing that Yahweh is the God who not only hears, but is resolved to bring about what he has committed himself to do for his people. So he inquires, will you be angry? Will you keep the heaviness of your anger upon us from one generation to the next? This persuasive prayer is made very, very plain as he continues in verse 6. He says, will you not revive us? Will you not revive us? As if to say reverently, you promised us life. You promised us blessing and salvation. You swore concerning your favor. Will you not keep your word now? Will you not keep your word to us, O Lord? That is, that is a, an example. That is exemplary. That is a good example of what it looks like to really plead with God in prayer. Reverently, humbly, submissively, but plead with God his promise. That he would bring his word concerning us back. That he would hear and he would answer. You know what that looks like. If you have children, you know what that looks like. Right? Boys, has mom and dad ever promised you something? Maybe we promised you something special, something that you, you could get something, or maybe you could go somewhere special, or that we were going to go out and do something together, right? And then a little while goes by, and then you say, hey, are we going to do that? When are we going to do that? How long? How long before we're going to go? And then if it takes a little bit, then what do you say? I know, I know Obi, he loves to say it. He says, but you promised but you promised, but you promised, right? You bring out the good big guns, right? And I, sometimes I need that. Sometimes I need my promises to be brought back to me, to remind me. You know, yeah, God doesn't need that, but he loves that. God doesn't need to be reminded. He knows all things well. Right? And his, uh, um, a thousand years is like a day in his sight. And he is not slack concerning his promises. He knows what he is doing. And he, he knows how to bring us to our knees. But uh, what I'm saying is in this illustration. Right? Bring God's promises to him in prayer. Plead God's promises. He loves that. Do it humbly. It's, it's effective. He wants us to do that. Through believing and praying the promises of God, the, the psalmist finds hope in hard times. God always keeps his promises. He does not need us to remind him because he knows all things. But he is delighted when we believe and hope in his word and we bring it to him. It pleases God to give us what he has promised. And he wants us to know that he is giving us what he has promised to give us. That it is a, a symbol, it is a token of his faithfulness to us. 
Therefore, we must know his promises. And how can you plead what you do not know? How can you plead what you do not know? We must be well acquainted with his word to us. Believe his words. Believe his promises. Pray them and trust that he will keep them. Now, just with the time remaining, I just would like to apply, make application of some of the principles in our text. And, and really, I just have one point. I have one point of application. In application, what we're seeking to answer are these questions. So what? I've heard everything, so what? What does Psalm 85 have to do with my life? How is God calling me to change or to live in this text of Scripture? That's what application is doing for us. Now I have one point, and the point is pray. Pray lest you be driven to prayer by hard providence. Pray lest you be driven to prayer by hard providence. This hymn, I hadn't really known it, but for the last couple of weeks I've been singing it, memorizing it, thinking about it. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Listen to this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. What peace do we often forfeit? What needless pain do we bear? Because we won't go to Him. Because we won't pray to Him. Because we won't cast our cares upon Him knowing He cares for us. As I've been thinking about that, I've asked myself this question. I've wondered... Is one of the reasons why I suffer and go through difficulty the way I often do is because I don't pray as I ought to pray. I don't know all things, but I have concluded to some degree, yes. Yes, this is true for me. Because I don't pray as I ought to pray always. And that is a shameful thing. But when hard providences enter into my life, I pray. And I pray in a way that I am not accustomed to praying. And I am learning with Spurgeon to kiss the hand that drives me to the rock. What about you? Do you pray as you ought to pray? Or do you need help getting down on your knees? Pray. Pray lest you be driven to prayer by hard providences. Set times for prayer throughout your day. Pray unceasingly. Etch into your mind reminders to pray. When you look up at the sky and you see the beauty of God's creation, let that be a little reminder. Let an alarm go off in your mind. Pray, 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 pray. We should get a, like a, an alarm for our phone that says that, right? Instead of that annoying um, nuclear bomb alarm. We should be constantly reminded, pray, pray. Pray. When you're tempted to complain, pray. When you're tempted to lust, pray. When you're tempted to get angry, to fear, to be anxious, to be lazy or indifferent, pray to God that he will deliver you from temptation. Go to him. Apply yourself to him. When you sin, run to him. Don't run away from him when you sin. Run to him through Christ Jesus and confess your sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive you if you will confess your sins to him. When you come together for a midweek prayer meeting, devote yourself to prayer. Be stingy about that time and devote it to prayer. Be praying. Don't waste your time. Don't let your mind wander. Come ready to, to, to wrestle with God. Pray for this church. Pray for other gospel churches. Pray for our government. Pray for the lost. Pray to God his own precious promises and then trust him to make good on them to you. Follow the pattern of the psalmist and remember God's mercies to you and praise him. Let those mercies embolden you to come to God for today's portion of grace. Let those, those past mercies give you certainty that tomorrow there will be another measure of that grace cut 
for your particular need. Pray lest you be driven to prayer by hard providence. Now as I conclude, what about you who do not pray at all? What about those of you who are running away from God? You're not running to Him in prayer and faith, but away from Him to sin and to some false hope in this world. You do not think about His past mercies towards you. Not because they are not there, but because you are blind to see them. Each one of us here have walked all of our life, no matter how hard the road has been. It has been paved with the gold of God's goodness to us. If you're an unbeliever here, still a stranger to God, you need to pray. You need to pray as well. Prayer is not just for believers. It is not just for religious people. The psalmist prayed for the forgiveness of sins, and you need your sins forgiven. The psalmist prayed... That God would remove his righteous wrath and fury. And right now, if you're not a believer, if you're not born again, the cloud of the tempest of God's eternal judgment looms over your head. The psalmist prayed for God to turn him. And you too need repentance. You need to turn from your sins. He prayed for revival, for life. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins if you are an unbeliever. He pled with God for salvation, for mercy. And you need mercy more than you need oxygen in your lungs right now. My dear friend, the only place where you're going to find those things that you desperately need is in my crucified Savior and risen King, Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can save your soul. Only He can make you whole. Your burden He is willing to. To bear. Entrust to him all of your cares. Repent at his gracious call. And you will, if by faith, you surrender all. Mm -hmm. Surrender all today. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. And you do not know how many days he has appointed for your life. If you are without Christ, you are without hope. But you can have hope today in Christ Jesus if you will turn from your sins and trust him. Jesus paid it all. And though your sins be like scarlet, you come to him and you trust to him, you will be as white as snow. Amen. Come to him. Come to him in faith and be saved. Let's pray. Amen. Oh, gracious and merciful Father, we thank you for blessing, blessing your word to our souls this morning. We thank you that we have sensed something of your visitation, the Spirit working through your word. We bless you and we praise you for that. Thank you for blessing our worship today. Help us, Lord, to pray. Help us to come to you. Help us to trust you. Help us to hunger and thirst for your throne of grace. And I pray for anyone who is a stranger to that grace, that they would today learn that you are sweet you are meek and lowly that your burden is light and that you would draw them to yourself and have mercy upon them in christ's name amen